This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. My name is Jonathan, and I'm here to take you through the next thousands of years of Welsh history. And let's begin with our second episode called The Ice Recedes. In the beginning of human settlement in Europe, among those ancestors was the Neanderthal, a human offshoot which appears to be a Euro version of early humanity. For thousands of years, they dominated Europe until their cousins, who traveled from Africa, started to compete with them for food, and through genetic interrelationships, sex, slowly extinguished their line. Homo sapiens were here, and here to stay, and they brought with them an understanding of tool-making, durability, and millions of years of evolutionary drive, which is pushing them out of Africa and across the world. And of course, these are our ancestors. So, let's first, I guess, talk about what Britain is at the time period of Mesolithic era. At this point, the last great ice sheets are leaving the peninsula of Britain, um, not yet an island, simply because there's a great land mass that now runs where the North Sea now exists, called Doggerland. And so on this peninsula, which is considered fairly mountainous and would have been quite an elevation for most of the people living in the Doggerland area. You have a great diversity of forests and of fauna, things like uh, the aurochs, which is a uh, large cow, for lack of a better word, a large cattle. Uh, you have red deer, you have pigs, wild boar. Uh, you, one thing you don't have is domesticated animals. At this point, this starts to come in soon, but it, up till now, there hasn't really been any of that. Britain probably consists of about ten to 20,000 people, according to archaeologists, and that population obviously spread across the land, most of whom are probably scouring the coast, doing fishing and hunting, uh, using it not necessarily for a permanent dwelling, but more like a winter home or a, or a summer home where they go and catch game and then return home to their proper homes in Doggerland, uh, among other areas. Our ancestors at that time were tough, resilient people forced by circumstances of environment and natural selection into going farther and farther afield from probably what was their original uh, natural terrain. Likely, your Ice Age man or woman entering the Mesolithic period were hunters and gatherers and fishers. They fought over territory, moved with the animals they followed, and most likely used most of what they killed. They were inventive and imaginative. We get this from some of the cave paintings that we find in France, and we get this from the development of jewelry and things of that nature. So they were very creative people. Uh, unfortunately, the one thing we don't have is a lot of evidence. Uh, most of the Mesolithic era... The population is using things like hazelnuts, 
find those quite often, but you don't really find a lot of physical evidence of existence. Uh, houses are hard things to try and find from this period. They may have been simple huts made of dirt. They could have also been sort of tent-like objects, very similar to uh, what North American natives would have used. In reality, most of these humans would have been a little different from us, except for their ability and what they were able to achieve was different and limited by what they had with them. As we enter into the last Great Ice Age, about 15,000 years ago, the furthest extent of it is now moving off. At that point, it covered almost all of Wales, with the exception of the tip around Cardiff area. And Northern England and Scotland and all of Ireland were covered in ice. As it retreated, it left the British Isles, or as I said earlier, the British Peninsula, a part of the great European landmass. And uh, that area, of course, between Britain and Europe was called Doggerland. And Doggerland is something that we've only, probably in the last, I'd say, 40 years, really started to come to an idea of what that was. And certainly only within the last decade or so have we got the tools and the ability to be able to really understand what was going on. And we know for a fact that it was an area that had lakes, it had rivers, it had hills, it had all the things you'd expect of a landmass, and yet was overwhelmed by what we now call the North Sea through various geological processes, not the least of which, of course, being the retreat of the ice and the expansion of water around the world, but also through uh, a massive destructive moment when uh, there was a collapse of the land shelf in the North Sea, and when it went, it created a massive tsunami which probably destroyed most of the remaining land. There's about a 3,000 year period, in fact, so think of, <laughs> if you go back 3,000 years, so basically you're going back to early Egypt, early Greece, early Mesopotamia type of era, to now. Through that period, there was a massive change in what was then the landmass, and there would be constant climactic changes that in some extent would bring the water in, take it out, dry eras, wet eras, hot eras, cold eras, sometimes really cold eras, which would probably in all likelihood have forced people to move back down south. Um, but all of this comes along, and eventually things just sort of roll on themselves. And as the water continues to move in, our Mesolithic ancestors are trapped in what we now call Britain. And they are not fully trapped because, let's be honest, there's still people who can take boats, they can move around, they have experience traveling across oceans, across seas. I'm sure, much like modern humanity, it wasn't impossible for them to get across the English Channel, even as deep and as wide as it might be. And I think at the end of the day, there's still trade, there's still exchanges of people in and out of the British Isles at that point. But this is literally a wall that comes up between these two two places, creating this separation in what we call the British Isles. Um, so instead of, you know, going home to your lovely plain or hilly area in a natural abundance to have to go up and live in this new area, which is very forest, heavily forested, has a lot of bogs, 
has a lot of water, rivers and lakes, and the climate is always very wet. It would have been a change, I think, for, for some people. But people who are used to change because they're having to follow animals, because that's one of the things that we find with with any people that are, are reliant on animals primar primarily for food, is they're going to follow them wherever they go. So likely, you know, this was just one part of the norm for them. One of the other things that we run into in the Mesolithic era is a lack of evidence of housing in Britain. There is some, uh, but there's not loads. And what we do have, none of it is in Wales, funny enough. Uh, you don't, it's not until we get into the Neolithic period that we start to get homes in Wales. But before then, primarily what we find, and we find this pretty much primarily across the island, is if you find evidence of the Mesolithic people, it's going to be in their stone tool making. One of the objects that we will find are things called microliths. Microliths are small bits and pieces and leftovers from broken blades, broken axes. Uh, they're a little piece of uh, stone. They can be almost microscopic in size. They're certainly very tiny, and you have to be very careful about how, what you're looking for and how you're looking for them. Uh, archaeologists in places like the Gold Cliff area down by Newport in Wales, they've actually found evidence of both that and footprints, as well as evidence of aurochs and the killing of them because they found teeth and uh bits and pieces of berries and bones and all sorts of other things which sort of hint at the lifestyle of a hunter-gatherer at that point in time. But for the most part, there's not a lot of evidence of who these people are and who they were and what they did. We know that there was a domestication of dogs in this period, so they were used for hunting. This expanded, of course, their ability to capture animals and not have to run as farther afield, because when you have a dog, a dog can move quicker, so obviously it can track things down faster than a human can. And an expansion in tool design that, of course, leads us to the Neolithic era. And in fact, as the water slowly surrounds the British islands, one of the things that does happen is a change of tools so that we go from a stone tool, which is very rough and very thick, to a much thinner, much... In some ways, it's more brittle, but it is definitely sharper, finer tooled stone. And I think that's something that as we look at things in the future, and as we go through this history, uh, one of the constants will always be this movement of ideas, movement of ways of doing things and movements of how we get from there to here. But at this point, we're talking a change that happens over thousands of years, not like... Unlike in the modern era, where you go from having no phone to a house phone, to a cell phone, to an iPhone within the matter of a hundred years. In that period of time, we're talking thousands of years for any sort of minor change, let alone a major one. And some of which, of course, is focused and forced on them because of expanding populations, smaller area for people to roam. Um, if there was ten to 20,000 people here at the beginning of the Mithilistic era, obviously that starts to expand as people can't necessarily go easily back and forth across to the continent. And in that process, you have collisions in territory. Likely you would have increased demand for food sources and food supplies, and there would be confrontations over those things. We would find that kind of confrontation would create, obviously, a need to bring in allies and friends and family to help you deal with the intruder or the interloper. Uh, you have people uniting. 
going from being basically family units and extended family units into groups and into tribes and eventually into what we call nations. But all of this starts at this point. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals, so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And we can see these kind of things when we look at examples from other nations. Like, I've used the example of the Native American tribes. I believe if you use some of those examples, I think they're fairly obvious. You can see where as competition begins between groups for territory, for food, for water sources, you know, that's when you have your wars and your conflicts, you know, be they small little territorial disputes or massive ones. You see changes in the landscape as well, affecting how people can do things. And so what you'll have is you'll have this expansion of population going out from the easy areas, the more difficult ones, as they try and find their own territory to settle, their own place to go. And one of those, of course, being Wales. And that's why we're going to talk about this, is because the population does move into Wales. Initially, what we see and, and what some of the evidence that archaeologists talk about is evidence of stone tool making. Uh, the Mythalistic people were very skilled in creating stone tools. In some ways, they were more skilled than we are in that kind of production, but it's because they had thousands and thousands of years of making stone tools and using chirks and flint. Flint was, of course, the big thing for making that they made the tools out of because it was easy to chop flakes off of and flakes would be, you know, the, the leftover bits. And so what you'd end up happening is as people were producing stone tools is there'd be lots of little bits of stone 
left over, and that's actually where most of our evidence comes from, from an archaeological standpoint. Because if you find that, and you find charcoal, and you find other things, you start to get an idea that this is where things are happening. And in fact, at a place called Nab's Head, which is in Pembrokeshire, uh, there's actually a site for tool production that was in use uh, 8,500 BCE. And at this site was found all sorts of remnants of stone tools, both repair and construction, and the leftover bits that you find in these situations. But one of the most intriguing things that was found there, and actually it was one of the biggest finds of these things, was sh uh, shale beads. A shale bead that had a hole in it. So obviously it was tied to something else. The other problem we run into in the Mesolithic era is you don't have a lot of leftover evidence of natural product, which isn't stone. <laughs> so you don't have logs, you don't have, you know, that were turned into spears. You don't have things that were turned into other things a lot. Like we don't see what their production of their animal skins of you know, the various uses they would have found. We find evidence of bone cutting. We find evidence of stone use, but we don't generally find a lot of other stuff. So these beads are kind of exciting because what those mean is obviously they can mean a bunch of different things, right? They can be a ritualistic thing. They could be a, more importantly, I think, something where, you know, the young, your young hunter on the lookout might have uh, wanted to get himself some swag before he goes home to his sweetie. And a uh, beaded necklace might not go amiss. Um, or these could be things that your great man or your chief needs in order to make a trade for some item that he wants, you know. For example, your chief hypothetically could have taken those beads and he could have used them to make a trade of tools with uh, another group. Or he could have gone down and used it to get items that maybe were difficult to get across his particular domain that he knew someone else had. Uh, so they were almost like a currency after a fact, one could imagine. And I think what we will find is that, in a way, that personal nature of these makes them much more easy to connect on a modern basis. I mean, it's a lot easier to explain to people why they would have beads and why they'd want decoration and why people would have something important to them. Uh, we find as time goes on that burials are done, these beads and others like them will be buried with people because that'll be a reminiscence of them. You know, maybe it was something they always wore, and so when they died, people felt it just natural to bury them with them. Maybe it was something that was sacred to them, and it got buried with them. Maybe it was something significant in their life, something they got from some person that they had significance to them. All of these reasons would be reasons to have it buried with them. And what we see in the Mytholistic era is a expansion of the idea of something beyond just themselves. And I think that's when we can talk about ritual. Now, what is ritual? Ritual is an academic word for worship. Let's put it bluntly. Uh, so what did our ancestors worship? Well, we have no idea. Um, unfortunately, there's no record of what they would have thought of. I mean, we can make guesses again based on watching others in similar circumstances. And obviously, there would be relationships with animals, relationships with the natural environment that would create some sort of connection. Your ancestors would also be a connection, your, your family. Um, all these things would be a connected way you were through the universe. But at the end of the day, rituals come about because people are wanting answers to questions. You know, what is the meaning of life? 
Why are we here? Where are we going? Those are questions that every basic human being has, and it would be no different back then as it is now. I mean, the answers they would come to would be very different, but the reality of it is, is that they would start from that same basic point. You know, why are we here? Why are we in this place? Why are we doing what we're doing? And where are we going? And they would define that through their world. Now, obviously, it would be, you know, if you depend on who you talk to as to how that would be translated, what that would mean to them, you know, how significant it was that they were going to an afterlife, whether they even had a concept of an afterlife, whether it was just simple, you know, understandings of not even gods, but more natural forces. It, it's obviously is impossible to say, but what we do get, and we will get this heavily as we go into the Neolithic period, is we get the sense of ritual that begins at the Mithalithic era. Uh, and there's a lot of talk that some of the holdovers from the Mithalithic era transfer into the Neolithic era. Things like marker stones and marker posts made of wood that are designed that nobody really knows what they're for, but yet seem to be something important. They were significant enough to be put in places of importance. Uh, we know that people built things in certain ways. And again, as we get into a agricultural culture, which has more time to kind of think about their life, especially in the wintertime when they're not growing the stuff, but they have their harvest to eat. Funny enough, as people have less to do, they think more, thus they philosophize more. So if you're not running around day to day, chasing your food, picking your food, wash, rinse, repeat your food every single day, then you have a totally different sort of way of looking at life. And in the agricultural communities, this is why a lot of archaeologists had always believed that ritualization of the environment into a proper religious movement could not have come before, before agriculture because of that sense of place, sense of time, that you would have in an agricultural community that you don't have as a hunter-gatherer. As we've seen, there is evidence that hunter-gatherers still had ritualized places. In fact, there's evidence that there are things like headdresses that were used in the area of Starcar up in Yorkshire. Uh, these show that there was some understanding or some belief system that was going on there. Uh, very similar, I guess, to the way a shaman would have been in in other cultures and other similar environments where there is a, a view of the past which has been made. And there are even temples in places like Turkey, but we don't understand them well enough to be able to say, yeah, that's firmly what this was used for. This is firmly what they were doing. All we have is a concept. And at the end of the day, a lot of archaeologists will argue that gives us a good starting point. And we still have lots of work to do to try and understand. Well, until we have a written language to work from, all we're really doing is making educated guesses based on other observations, like you do in any sort of scientific field. You know, if you can't go back in time and actually witness what's going on, you do the next best thing. You look for people in a similar circumstance, and you read the historical record, or you go and speak with these people and try and understand what they think their world is about. And as we look at communities in the Amazon and in places where there are still people who go around with stone objects as their primary tool, uh, it helps us to get some sense of why. Now, these plagues of questions that we have don't go away. And so what we end up with is from now 
from the Stone Age until now, there's an expansion of this thought, you know, where this meaning of life, and it will continue to haunt us, if you want to call it that, uh, from this point until now. And yet, even as the ideas change, the basic concept comes down to these three questions. And I think a lot of ritualization comes out of these questions. And so I think in a sense, what we do know is, is that there is a concept of honoring loved ones through burial, depositing with them their value, things that might have value to them. Uh, as I earlier mentioned, the bead, and also a understanding of the environment, you know, the sun, the moon, the causes of things, you know, they would have had an understanding of, of tides at its basis sense, because they would have been able to see them happening. Uh, they would have had an understanding of water and how it works. They'd have a basic understanding of how animals react and do things. And so they would have built around themselves, I'm sure, a layer of understanding based on this. And it would define them. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think that's something that we need to take into our minds, is that they would have been just like us, thinking and imagining and wondering. And as the Mesolithic people become the Neolithic people, we'll see a complete change in how humans interact with rituals in the world. We'll find much more evidence of this uh, in wooden hinges, in stone hinges, in barrows, and all sorts of other things that still baffle us even today to try and understand what they mean. Uh, ask somebody what a stone hinge is and you'll get 50 million different ideas. And some of them goofy and some of them well thought. And uh, we're still trying to understand what all of this was, what it did and why it was done. And we may never really know, but the good thing is, is we're learning. And as we learn, we'll continue to expand our thoughts. We'll continue to expand what we understand. And the early Welsh person who wouldn't have obviously considered themselves a Welsh person, would have been affected by these things just as much as we are today. You know, they're, they're affected by the environment probably a little more than we are. They're infected by the natural world in some ways more than we are, but they still had the same concerns. They still had the same worries, I'm sure, about their family, about their loved ones, and they still worked hard to try and make the best that they could with what they had. And, uh, I think that's what we need to take away from that. So next week, we're going to talk more about the, the Neolithic period, and I hope you'll join us for that. And we're just getting started. Please make sure you follow us on Twitter. I'm at JohnDMP. Uh, you can also go to a, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Uh, you can also, of course, give us a like and a review on iTunes and on Stitcher and on Google Play. We appreciate those reviews. They help us out tremendously and help others to find us. And I hope you'll contact us and you can contact us at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, for now, take care. We'll see ya. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com.
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.